you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, I, I hope after this streak, the, the audience uh, has a sense of absence makes the heart grow fonder. Man, another <laughs> another wonderful interview. And yeah, exactly. I hope so too. <laughs> hope, I hope they want to hear us talk, you know, for just me and you going back and forth. Uh, yeah, no, but, but this is good. It's good to have um, another two cents to add to our two cents. Yeah, get, keep the conversation, especially with with things that uh, you know people will definitely think we're not qualified to maybe speak on. So yeah, well, I I prefer the term uh, division of labor. Uh, there's just <laughs> certain things uh, you and I are not strong in areas we're not strong in. So it's always good to bring in people that are stronger than us in the area. So with that said, uh, we have Deanna McLeod, who's the principal and lead strategist for Kaleidoscope Strategic. Um, Deanna, why don't you uh, give the audience uh, a little bit of context of, of what that entails and, and how, uh, how you become or, or became interested in you know, COVID and all that that is? Yeah, good question. So um, yeah, I'm the principal and founder of the medical research firm called Kaleidoscope Strategic. And our group of researchers focus in oncology, which is cancer research. Um, and, uh, we started off in 2000 and, uh, you know, I came out of 10 years in industry and decided that, or saw that uh, a lot of the way that treatment decisions were being made, um, sometimes were skewed, uh, towards, uh, pharma products in a way that wasn't really independent or balanced. And so, um, the other factor that was kind of interesting is that, in Canada, there's a lot of different views on how things should be treated across provinces. And so I thought, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, launch an independent research firm uh, that would do, you know, balanced evidence-based evaluations of treatments? Um, and so I launched that in 2000. And um, so we've been, we've been at this for like 21 years now. Uh, the team's grown, which has been great. And we've really come to specialize in sorting through evidence particular uh, published literature, clinical evidence on treatments and packaging them up and working with uh, doctors. So we've got a, a network of about 500 um, doctors in Canada that we support in making clinical treatment decisions. And so we've published about 40 treatment guidelines uh, that have been uh, published in peer-reviewed journals, a lot of them very high impact and kind of leading journals. Uh, and so we're, we specialize in parsing data. Uh, we've got a background in, you know, our team has a background in immunology, you know, molecular biophysics, molecular oncology, molecular biology. You know, we've got years of industry experience. We've got clinical uh, folks on the team too. So I think what, uh, you know, our team does is we really understand how a lot of different fields work together. Uh, we understand how to parse through data and weigh evidence. Uh, to see if something is a good decision or a bad decision in terms of, you know, whether it will benefit the patient. And I think, uh, you know, unique to our particular perspective is we have a bird's eye view. And one of the things in, uh, you know, treatment is that we have a lot of silos in medicine. So, you know, if you're a surgeon, you know surgery, and then you rely on your medical oncology co colleague to do 
you know, medical oncology. Uh, you know, in, in the COVID scenario, you've got your epidemiologist, you've got your public health official, you've got, um, you know, your immunologist, and all of them know their particular areas very well. But um, it's not as common to see people who have a facility across a number of different therapeutic areas and uh, disciplines. And so I think that our team basically works really well together to do that. And so, Joel, you were asking, you know, how we got into the whole COVID thing. And mm -hmm. clearly, we're specializing in oncology. So that doesn't really match very well, right? Um, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as with everybody else in March 2020, we were all of a sudden, like, in a pandemic and we're locked down. And we're like, oh, this is strange. Like, wow, this must be really serious. Um, and, you know, we're kind of nerds and we crunch data all the time. And so we were crunching numbers and, you know, comparing things. And, you know, one of the things that we started to notice that it was very peculiar uh, in the sense of how things were being conveyed and decisions that were being made, i.e. interventions, uh, that weren't necessarily supported by a high level of data. Um, mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, you know, this is kind of strange this shouldn't really be happening based on this level of evidence. This isn't the, the threshold that you would look like you would look to, to have practice changing data. Um, so, you know, we all started getting curious, kind of like you guys and uh, started <laughs> digging in a little bit more. And um, sorry, so one of the I, things we, yeah, I, go ahead. I wanted yeah, to, sure. When you say um, changing, you know, the, the, you know, interventions um, I I'm, just to clarify, are you referring to sort of, um, you know, we had these pandemic response plans or preparedness response plans and the things that we're doing were outside of those and, and sort of not backed up by data? Is that, is that what you're referring to when you say? Yeah, um, well, I, I think that, that what you're saying is true, but what I was referring to particularly is, for instance, the way that they were conveying the numbers initially related mm -hmm. to the pandemic. Um, so for instance, they would be saying, you know, there's this many cumulative cases in such and such a company country, and there's a cumulative cases in this and the cumulative, you know, the, and then now we have this many cumulative cases. And it seemed, you know, basically from our perspective, what that is, is a lack of contextualization of data. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically it's not asking good questions from the data and it's choosing the most uh, dramatic element of the data to emphasize. And it seemed very strange to us that they were always emphasizing cumulative cases. You know, they weren't breaking it down by demographic. They weren't talking about cases over time. You know, you know the, the data was very chunky, clunky, I guess, is what you would refer to initially. And so we thought that was very strange and lacked a little bit of sophistication and finesse. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of got our, 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 like, hmm, you know, you'd expect more from the World Health Organization and the CDC and, you know, these, these, you know, bodies that we really, you know, admire, right? Um, but, you know, I think with everybody, we're like, okay, you know, it's all new. We don't know what we're doing. You know, we don't have a lot of data. So I hope that whoever is running the show is making some good decisions, you know, and then I was like, hey, vacay. <laughs> <laughs> life got a lot more simpler. We were at the cottage. I was like, this ain't bad, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about, you know, interventions, so that's kind of data analytics was a little bit light. 
-hmm. when I'm talking about interventions, it was things like, you know, the World Health Organization having a position prior in 2019 with respect to lockdowns that basically said, you know, the harms outweigh the benefits, right? Uh, and then suddenly in 2020, that position changed and it was based on data coming from China related to the lockdown. Uh, you know, and of course, that's what you would call a case report. That's one case uh, of where it might, a lockdown might have worked, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it is definitely not a threshold for practice change. So we thought that was very curious. Usually you need something much more rigorous in order to support that kind of an intervention or that kind of a practice change. Uh, and then we thought it was very strange, too, that, you know, it was the, the statement on the World Health Organization changed without really any, you know, evidence to support it, right? It's not like they said, oh, it was based on this, and we know that this doesn't meet the threshold for change, but we think it's really important, and, you know, we're doing it based on a precautionary principle. It was just like, nope, this is now the way it is. So we thought that was, again, very curious. So what you call that would be is an unsubstantiated and unsupported practice change. Mm. So, again, we're like, hmm, that's odd. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, we're, we specialize in oncology. So, you know, multimodality treatment is how it goes. You know, like if you've got cancer, you know, you're going to do surgery, you're going to do radiation, you know, you're going to give some chemotherapy, maybe some biologics. You know, you've got a lot of tools in your toolkit. And so when we analyzed the situation in China, what we noticed was that they did early response. Um, they did central quarantine. They did symptomatic and asymptomatic testing. And they did localized lockdowns that lasted a maximum of two months. Mm -hmm. So that intervention was multimodal, you know, multimodal um, and short-lived. And so in the cancer world, what you'd say is they cut the tumor out. You know, they got the tumor out. Um, and then what we've done in the Western world, which is very curious, is to say, well, you know, they cut the tumor out and they got rid of the virus. So then lockdowns work. So then we can't, you know, we didn't respond early. We didn't do the proper testing. We didn't do central quarantine. Uh, but we're going to do prolonged lockdowns, which is kind of like a palliative approach, and hope that we get the same results as what they got in China. So then basically that would be a misapplication of data. So, so you know. That's interesting. So like, I guess uh, for those people who skipped statistics <laughs> um, and don't know how to uh, handle data, because sometimes it could be overwhelming. I'm getting numbers from every side. Uh, what are some uh, tips and tricks you can suggest for uh, those of us who aren't um, numerically inclined to? <laughs> analyze the data yeah. and break it down. So one of the things that we've done is develop a YouTube channel called COVID Sense. Uh, and I can provide you the link for your show notes. But um, that basically has a whole video on how to navigate data and how to contextualize it so that you can understand and make better decisions. Um, so that's kind of just the numbers that you would see being reported. It's become much more sophisticated now than it was initially. Um, and you know, in terms of weighing data, there's a few uh, articles in there that or a few of the YouTube channel or the videos have um, a, an evidence-based pyramid. And, you know, what you would be able to decide, like what's practice changing is something that has, you know, a randomized controlled trial 
preferably placebo-controlled and fairly large, against a standard of care. And then you would basically, if it proves to be better without causing any harm, then you would basically do a practice change. So when I'm saying practice changing, that's what I mean. And uh, I can give you a link to, to that as well if you'd like. Does yeah, that answer your question? I'm not sure if I hit it. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll definitely uh, have that video. I think it was uh, COVID data, navigating sources and numbers. I, I think, yeah. you know, just on that note with regards to data, I think for me, the biggest thing was um, the, really, the like you said, a lack of contextualization of data. And I think, at least tell me if I'm wrong here, but the way that I always saw cases, cases was a proxy for new infections because new infections is what we cared about. But cases always have a delay in terms of time. As well, there's a huge issue with the potential for duplicated data, especially as we pro prolong the time frame. Um, I think for the listener, uh, the way that I've always described the duplication of data was the only way that they could account for multiple cases from the same person is if they did two tests at the same time uh, for the same person. But if they did two tests on two different days, it would be counted multiple times. Um, can you speak to that in terms of, you know, is that an accurate sort of assessment of the what cases are valuable for and, and why there's limitations? Yeah, I mean, there's so many issues with case counts in general. So I think to your point, I agree with you that we always thought that it was meaning that the person was infectious. Mm. Um, you know, we now know that the PCR test, which is the main tool that we've been using to, you know, guide ourselves and count cases, uh, has a large, um, you know, false positive rate. And that's because it, it detects genetic material that can't distinguish between prior and current infections. So you could have had a, a, an infection and recovered from it. And then, you know, now you're, you're being, you know, tested and you have, you know, you're become positive, but it's because your immune system, you know, has recovered and is now holding on to parts of that virus in order to make antibodies and, and, you know, um, I don't know, just, it, it just has remnants of genetic material. And so, you know, one of the things that we always thought was that, you know, it would, it would reflect infection, whereas clinically what you usually do is you test for symptoms and you diagnose based on symptoms and you confirm with pathology or a test. And so we kind of that another one of the curious things that we did in this, this whole thing was we said, oh, we'll test first, and we will say, we'll make that the primary diagnosis. And then we had to develop this weird category called asymptomatic spread, because we were like, oh, and there's people who are testing positive without symptoms, they must be infectious, but without symptoms. That's strange, right? Isn't that uh, new? Instead of like, is that a new perspective? <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it it it's it's a little bit backwards, right? So before they would say if they don't have clinical symptoms, then we would never test for anything. So then they would be negative. It's a negative diagnosis. So all of a sudden here we're like, "Oh, the test is positive, so that must be that they're clinically infective." Uh, which is really not true because it doesn't rule out the fact that you could have a false positive, right? So here what we were doing is they use that to fuel fear. Uh, that your neighbor then is spreading the disease to you. Whereas anybody who uh, was looking at the data carefully would have basically said, oh, why don't we rule out the possibility that it's a false positive test? So again, mm -hmm. that would be another one of those curious things like, hmm, you know, they should know better. 
than to make that assumption. And if they did want to make that assumption, then considering the impact that's having on everybody, what they should have done is they should have tested for infectivity and compared the two. So they would have said, let's do a viral culture, which is the, the test for infectivity, and see how it correlates with the PCR test. So considering that we've been a year and a half, and that I think the first study that actually did that you know, looking at asymptomatic spread came out in December, which was almost a full year after the pandemic started. Uh, and that, you know, in that particular study, that was, um, you know, Chinese, it was a, a, a retrospective review of, of 10 million Chinese people who recovered from COVID. And, you know, what they did was they tested them all and they looked at people who had asymptomatic spread and then they followed them down and they realized that, you know, even though they were asymptomatic, you know, they didn't test positive for the virus at all. And nobody, they, they traced all of their contacts, nobody got an infection from them. So, mm. you know, that would have immediately disproved the theory of asymptomatic spread. And of course, a little bit later, we find out that the, the PCR test was never intended to measure infection um, and has been um, not correctly utilized. Uh, so then, you know, so all of a sudden we now, okay, asymptomatic spread isn't a thing. So do we need to be social distancing and do we need to be locked down and do we need to have all these measures? And so even though all this new data came in, uh, you know, nobody, including the, the, the people who should be looking at this, are adjusting our, our plan. So again, our team mm -hmm. thought that was very curious. Mm -hmm. You know, we're wondering why that is. Why aren't we asking increasingly more sophisticated questions and why aren't we analyzing it? in a way that ensures that our policies are appropriate. It's one thing to have some graces initially, but, um, you know, science should prevail ultimately. Um, so I'm not 100% sure why uh, that's happening, but, you know, that's some of, those are some of the things that our team started to think was relatively curious. Like, hmm, you know, why are lockdowns such a thing now? And, you know, asymptomatic spread and then the notion of masks you know, why, why would we all of a sudden think that a virus that's that size would not be spreading via aerosol spread, which is what would be normally and expected? And why would we think that, you know, a mask could stop that, you know, knowing that it, you know, the viruses are so small, and it's the actual fibers and circuitous nature of the fabric that is the stuff that stops the virus. Um, and that any hole or gap would allow the virus to escape. Um, why would we think that a mask would help? That should have easily been disproven right out of the gate. And yet, to this day, we're still, you know, recommending masks. So there's a, a number of curious elements to the interventions that we've, you know, undertaken. Uh, with little contextualization, a lack of sophistication in terms of analysis, and unfortunately, no course correction, um, which, you know, we thought was a little bit concerning, you know, and, and as we continued, it just seemed like, okay, so they're not, you know, nuancing the data properly, okay, and they're not, you know, extrapolating, you know, they're using, you know, low levels of evidence, like, for instance, case reports, which is a the Chinese situation to extrapolate to the whole world without any control. Mm. Mm, you know, <laughs> they're, you know, recommending masks. They're creating a new thing called asymptomatic spread. <laughs> no. Yeah. Continue anyway. curiosity. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of uh, asymptomatic um, spread, I, I guess for me, um, I, 
I can I don't consider myself the 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 sharpest tool in the shed. So when something makes sense to me, um, it must be true. So the idea that asymptomatic, like it, it, to me, I just couldn't wrap my head around how you can be sick with something and not show any signs of it. Or, or even better, be sick to the point of being able to share it with somebody without knowing yourself. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that, and I always found that kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we're, we kind of lean towards okay, so that could be a thing, right? That's hypothesis generating. It's always the beginning of a good line of inquiry. Um, so let's follow that through and look where the data leads. Um, you know, the initial the initial. Um, I guess where the whole idea of asymptomatic spread came from was they were, you know, these cases that were, you know, emerging from China, you know, in in some of the other Asian countries. And they noticed that, you know, so-and-so came and they had an asymptomatic disease, but then somebody else caught it and, you know, before their symptoms came. And so it must be asymptomatic spread. You know, they did all these projections and this modeling and lo and behold, that must be the answer. And then all of a sudden put the whole world on alert. This is what the case cases you know so i really would have preferred to see some better inquiry and some more rigorous testing and some validation before we adopted some of these policies you know mm. internationally and i personally think that um it's curious that you know given that it's a year and a half and the the social and economic toll that all of this has taken that we haven't gotten to the bottom of a lot of those questions with some good science Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we've continued to pursue those policies in the absence of that science, even at great harm to society. So I guess that comes back to another another piece for our team is that, uh, you know, we're we're committed, you know, we're a little bit of that making sure that people have, you know, truth, like we're like pers- pursuers of truth. And so, you know, making sure to equip people with the ability to navigate the data and ask the questions and learn the scientific methods so that they can discern whether what policymakers are are doing and recommending is actually really reasonable. Mm. And to ask for better data if we can, and to ask better questions and to make better choices for themselves. Yeah, so that's kind of how we got into the whole thing. And and that's how we kind of shifted over to COVID. And I think our team together has probably been, put, we've put about 700 hours into this, wow. um, researching various aspects of COVID and, and getting oh, wow. to the bottom of it. And yeah, so, you know, when we've teamed up with a great organization called the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, uh, and they're, they're like 200 scientists strong, you know, and now we're collaborating with them to kind of get to the bottom of a lot of this science and see you know, the, whether it stands up to more rigorous scrutiny and to see whether some of this policy is really, uh, you know, grounded in the appropriate level, have the appropriate levels of, of support in terms of evidence for what they're doing. Mm. So I don't know, Joel, did that answer your question about, yeah, you know, no, how, I, I, how I, we got into this? Yeah. And, and I think at least this is my super simple summary that I think you've sort of, um, you know, what you've said about, you know, the things that we've changed without, let's say, a, a, a normal standard of evidence, and then the evidence that's come in that's sort of gone against a lot of the things. Um, I, I like to say to people, especially in a Christian perspective, you know, reverting back to the Christian principle of quarantining the sick is the one thing that's, you know, logical, uh, and everything else sort of still seems to be uh, very difficult to substantiate with data. 
Mm-hmm. Sorry, Joel. What do you mean by about quarantining the sick? Um, just think about how they treated leopards or lepers. Okay, right in the okay. Bible that that you, when someone is sick and and infectious, yes, quarantining them is an appropriate response. Um, it's but you know essentially we're quarantining the healthy. Um, with with lockdowns, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a really there's a lot of interesting dynamics from a cultural perspective that are at play too, right? So, you know, we're this this pandemic isn't in the absence, you know, it's not in a vacuum in the sense that we're in a, a cultural moment, right? Where we've had a series of, you know, where victim politics, I don't even know how to better say it, but like where we identify a group that's been oppressed or hurt or is vulnerable, and then all of society needs to then move to accommodate this group, right? And we've had a number of different, uh, you know, experiences of that over the last number of years based on different profiles of group. But I don't think that this is, you know, this has a lot of the same attributes. You know, the whole pandemic began by, oh, my goodness, our elderly are are vulnerable and therefore we all need to lock down. Um, So, you know, it's kind of interesting to see our cultural moment in science intersect. I think we've seen it from a societal perspective, but then to start to see us say, you know, wait a second in, in medicine, what we always do is the risk benefit harm, the risk, it's a clinical benefit ratio. So do the harm, do the benefits outweigh the risks for the person who is, is being treated or has the disease. And so all of a sudden we've done this really interesting shift where we've said, okay, there's a person that's, that's vulnerable and could be at risk therefore all of society should now shift in order to accommodate them mm-hmm. so it's it's a very curious dynamic that's entered into the medical world where it's it shifted the clinical benefit ratio from an individual person's thing to a collective position and i think that a lot of that dynamic has been at play in this pandemic you know the concept of for the greater good um seems to be, you know, at play there. And and I don't know the specifics, but I always thought there was this, you know, medical principle regarding um you know, if something is harmful to the individual and and i.e. the the risk is greater than the benefit, the argument for the greater good is basically invalid. Am I am I wrong there? Is there a medical principle there? Is there- Well, there's the Hippocratic oath which says for at first, you know, at first do no harm, right? Mm-hmm. So for sure. But then I don't know if it's particularly so, but it's always been at the individual level, right? These collective, there's no such precedent as a collective thing, but any collective thing that you would do would always be limited by not harming an individual. So that would be the basis, you know, for instance, medical ethics applied to public health would be, you can do a societal intervention, but you have to make sure that people can opt out and you have to make sure that it does no harm to any given segment and that everybody has a say in whether they want to participate or not. So for instance, you know, our whole society went into lockdowns, which was a medical intervention. However, it was missing a lot of those ethical elements, which is ensuring that it's not going to harm anybody, uh, ensuring that people can opt out and ensuring that we had a say in the matter. So a lot of these are are very shocking i would say changes in what would normally be protocol and i think what's curious about it 
particularly is that it seems to be adopted at multiple levels. And, you know, institutions and bodies and organizations who you would think would be able to apply these basic principles uh, are not doing so. So, you know, there's lots to look at in this COVID pandemic because a lot of the ways that we've traditionally done things and a lot of the, the standards that we've used and a lot of the principles that we've applied in order to ensure that no harm is done have kind of been, I guess, put aside. Mm. So, uh, and, you know, and, and it's across the board for a number of these things. With, I guess, you know, with respect to the, um, you know, the vaccines and, and the phase that we're at, or I guess the phase that we've been in for 2021, sort of in the rolling out of those, and, and obviously the limited data um, that does exist, you know, what, what I, I'm guessing that's what, you know, your investigation into that data is sort of what led to the two playlists from on the COVID sense page, which is, you know, COVID vaccines and then informed consent. Um, can you speak to, you know, what, what you've seen in the data, what's good about the data with regards to the vaccine, what maybe what's concerning or what's missing um, and, and why those two playlists, you know, what, what, or why those, you know, sort of groups of videos, what was the, the purpose there? Yeah, that's a, those are good questions. Um, so uh, it's so funny because we really started off by saying, you know, we're just going to take a, a broad sweep and we're going to talk about all these these topics, you know, lockdowns and masks and, you know, you know, you know the list, right? It's, it's what everybody's talking about. And then, you know, we'll do vaccines and as part of that, that whole process. And then, of course, you know, vaccines started rolling out and we started to get a little bit concerned with the way, you know, I mean, we've been concerned with a lot of the different interventions up till date, up to up to this point. And then all of a sudden, you know, early this year, the vaccines started to roll out. And, you know, we're like, well, thank goodness there's something to get us out of this crazy mess, right? And we're like, if there's a vaccine that's going to get us out, we'll take it, right? And so we're we're joking around as our in our team, and we're you know, and then and then somebody said, oh, you know what? Like, let's take a look at the studies and and see what they look like, right? Um, you know, because vaccines are always safe and effective, right? So and that's pretty much how they've been um, positioned for us as consumers. And so we took a lot a look at. Uh, the safety profile, and we're used to working in chemotherapy with cytotoxics, right? So our area is different than what you would normally be looking at for vaccines because, you know, there's different standards and burdens of proof that you need for various agents depending on how safe they are. So, for instance, in cancer treatments, uh, you need to have, because they're, they're toxic, you have to have a high burden of proof in order to be able to prescribe it for anybody or to administer it or to make sure that that becomes a standard of care. And you have to really prove that it's more beneficial uh, than the standard that you have. Um, so for what that actually looks like is, you know, they start off with really advanced cancer patients, and then they move up a little earlier, and then they move up a little earlier. And, you know, when it comes to treating people who are, you know, newly, you know, have just been diagnosed with cancer, uh, the study sizes are big, they're long lasting, they're very rigorous, they're very nuanced, you break down all the data, you figure out who's benefiting and who's not, you only give it to the people who are benefiting and you don't give it to the people who don't. So that's the kind of level or standard 
of evidence that you see with something that's toxic, right? But it's, it doesn't necessarily apply to vaccines because generally speaking, they're biologically inactive. And when you say they're biologically inactive, what that really means is that they don't have any effect in and of themselves. They're usually attenuated or dead viruses that are administered intramuscularly. You know, they remain in the shoulder. Basically, your immune system identifies them, develops antibodies to the virus, and then you basically have what you call sterilizing immunity. So the mm-hmm. most that you would see with a, a vaccine would be, you know, a little bit of local reaction. So if you look at the studies historically, that's what you would see. So we were looking at these COVID-19 vaccine studies, and our expectation was biologically inactive, you know, a little bit of shoulder pain. And then we looked at the systemic uh, adverse event profile. And what that means, it's the side effects. The systemic means that the ones that, you know, aren't local, but go through your whole body. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the systemic uh, AE profile, and we're like, what the heck is that? Like, that looks like chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. That looks like a cytotoxic agent. This is definitely not something that is biologically inactive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we now, had this big joke, right? We're like, sorry, go I ahead. was just going to say, are, would that be more so related to the, the not so much COVID, but the, the mRNA or, or like, cause I'm assuming if you well, look at the more traditional ones, would you, would you still see those or is it hard to t- Oh decipher? no, you wouldn't see that. That's a, it's a very unusual side effects profile and that really caught our attention because you just usually don't have, you know, you'll have mild side effects you know, and this, you had like, I think there's like 15% of people have such severe side effects that it, it, they're not able to carry about their daily activity and or are hospitalized and or die, right? Like mm. that's, that's the <laughs> level of side effects that we're seeing with these vaccines, right? So our whole team was like, what is happening? Like you, like they better have some really good data to prove that this is if they're going to be administering this to healthy people right then all of a sudden the need for burden of proof if you have something that's this toxic should be very 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 high right Mm -hmm. um so then we started to dig down into it and we realized that um you know i mean just a little bit of background so for vaccines, uh, you, you want to prevent disease. So that's different than treating disease. So with, when you're treating disease, you basically say, okay, you know, if you're super healthy and you don't have a big risk of disease, you know, even if you give like early treatment for cancer, it's still an individual clinical benefit ratio, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically, am I going to benefit from this if I take it, if not? And, but you want, really want to make sure that you're not going to do them more harm than good. So then you want to prove what it is. And that usually involves large randomized controlled trials that go on for years, right? Mm -hmm. So in the vaccine world, because we're dealing with usually safe and non-toxic biologically inactive agents, you basically don't need the same burden of proof. So what they do is they test it in healthy volunteers. Ideally, you know, you want the trial to go on for two to three years. Um, and then you may want to do, you know, phase three B trials, which are basically trials where you open it up to other subgroups. So you start with healthy people and then you might open it up to the elderly or you might look at a, a subpopulation that you want to make sure it's safe in. So then you would kind of do these kind of extension trials. But in the vaccine world, what's interesting is the use of surrogate endpoints. And I know that this is sounding really technical, but a mm-hmm. surrogate endpoint. So like. If you have a clinical endpoint, like for instance, cancer, 
you know, it could take 10 years for the cancer to come back. So that's a long term to wait, long time to wait to see if something works, right? Mm. So then what would be easier is if they had a surrogate, right? So, uh, you know, so one of the surrogates would be how much did, you know, did such and such by a lot, you know, lab value change or something like that. So in vaccines, they basically measure what they call antibody titers. So if you can develop antibodies to something, then they say, well, then we assume that you're going to be, that's going to have a clinical benefit. It's going to help you fight the disease later on, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you can, in this particular case with COVID, if we can lower the case numbers, then we'll assume that that means that it's actually going to help lower hospitalizations and death. So you don't actually prove that it lowers hospitalizations and death. You just say, oh, I'm going to consider it as a surrogate, right? But surrogates yeah. aren't as convincing when you're looking at toxic therapies. Mm. So uh, with these vaccine trials, here they've all of a sudden introduced a toxic vaccine, which I think would probably be better termed a gene therapy or a biologic, um, which ha- is not biologically inactive. And they've called it a vaccine. And because they've positioned it as a vaccine, um, it is then only having to do the same level of proof as something that's very safe, which I think was probably inappropriate in my view. Um, so basically what they did was they basic that phase one, two studies, they showed in 45 healthy individuals that it could develop, you know, that it would cause antibodies, which is a good sign, right? But it doesn't prove that it stops disease or infection. And then in the actual phase three studies, which were large and robust and and quite well designed, the primary endpoint, which is the only thing that you can really prove, was case uh, cases, uh, symptomatic cases of the disease. So you know they they basically said if you've got more or less cases in one arm than the other, uh, then we'll be able to assume that it improves things like severe disease, hospitalization, and death. However, um, the studies were only run for two and a half months. And although the cases <laughs> were different between the two arms, they didn't have any controls for exposure, uh, mm. and they didn't have systematic testing in the the two groups. So it was basically at the discretion of the physician whether they were to be tested. And then now we also now know that the test that they were using, the PCR test, isn't able to distinguish between active and 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 uh, previous infections. So all of that to say is that the cases as an endpoint, which was what the study was powered to do, isn't really convincing when you look at the data. There were also incredible levels of people that were lost to follow up. And whenever I make a point about that, if your event rate, which is the number of cases, is lower than your um, than the number of people that were just dropped out of the study, then you have to question the reliability of the results. So mm-hmm. all of this to say is at the end of the day, we hear lots of reports about the vaccines work. Uh, so I would question whether they lower cases and then they lower severe disease, but it didn't have any power to detect if it lowers severe disease. It didn't measure death and it didn't measure um, transmission of the disease. So a lot of the claims that are being made around these trials are probably not supported by available data. Okay. Um, based like on the phase three trial, inferring? which is what you're supposed to have. Pardon? Are they inferring from like, let's say standard vaccine perspective or just unsubstantiated is probably the best way to think about it. 
I would personally say that it's unsubstantiated, but it, their confidence may be drawing on the fact that they've got, you know, they consider antibodies a surrogate endpoint. Um, so, you know, that could be, in, that could be coloring it. They could also be inferring the fact that if the cases go down, then that means that the disease is being controlled. But again, I don't think that that's, uh, you know, probably supported for the type of intervention that they're doing. It might be supported if they were saying offering vaccines to everybody. But, you know, in Canada right now, we're at the point where we're mandating vaccination, mm-hmm. which means that regardless of whether it's beneficial for the individual, the society is asking people to begin to get vaccinated. And I wouldn't say that the level of data supports that type of uh, uh, an intervention, forceful yeah. intervention. That's okay. I'm I'm glad you brought up the idea of um, vaccine mandates, and your article was really good on on that issue. Uh, the 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 point I wanted you to just give some commentary on was you said um, are vaccine mandates legal, and in it you said um, just to jog your memory, uh, Canada is a free society, and we have the right to medical privacy, informed consent, freedom of movement, and bodily autonomy. These rights are protected under the Nuremberg Code, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and Canadian law. For a government to mandate vaccination, they would have to ensure that it did not violate the rights of its citizens or the laws of the land. Nicholas Wansbutter, a criminal lawyer, explains how these mandates not only violate our rights and freedoms, but could be considered assault under Canadian law. Can you expound on that for us, please? Okay, Nicholas did a way better job in the, the <laughs> law department than I. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, just just an overview. That I did. Again. Yeah. Well, I guess. I guess. Um, I guess the the piece around um, the Nuremberg Code is really the heart of informed consent, and informed consent means that you have access to all of the information around a treatment that's being made or that you're you're being offered. You have full access to the um, risks and benefits that you have the ability to make to weigh the risks and benefits for yourself and to make sure that the benefits outweigh the harms uh, and that you're able to do so uh, with assistance and free of coercion. So a mandate, if I were to come in and say, I require you to do this and I know and it hasn't been proven that it can't harm me would be a violation violation of the Nuremberg Code of Informed Consent. Uh, in terms of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we have the freedom to choose uh, basically what happens to us, and we have the right to bodily autonomy, means that we get to decide what goes into us. So any type of, you know, a mandate would be limiting your interaction with the public in public life. You're limiting your ability to work, limiting your ability to interact with people based on something um, well, basically, it's a violation of your rights and freedoms. And to think that we're doing this without a very, very strong level of evidence. And I haven't gotten into the safety of the vaccines, but it is definitely proven that they are not safe for everybody. So to require everybody to have that would be a violation of our charters, rights and freedoms. And then the Canadian law is if you voluntarily and willfully administer something to somebody else that could harm them, that's called assault. Interesting. Yeah, because I guess, you know, for us, sometimes is, well, not sometimes, but most, most of the population, uh, we're not familiar with um, what our rights are, what our freedoms are, 
and what's allowed and what's not to be allowed. And and kind of we have a status mindset where we're kind of like, okay, well, if if the government says it, then it must be right or it must be true. But of course, you know, there are there definitely are um there is a group of people in society that definitely don't believe that and are always critical of what's being said. I think that um, you know, as Christians, we're to be seekers of truth, right? Yep. And like the Marines. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, we're we're supposed to be critical thinkers, uh, always considering things. And one of the things is that, you know, truth and love go hand in hand, right? So you can't actually be loving unless you're truthful. So for instance, if I say to you, oh yes, this is going to be good for you. But meanwhile, I know that it's going to be harmful. And I say, you need to do it. Then I'm not being loving at all. Right? So as Christians, we really need to be Con- always considering this intersection. And if somebody is not not a Christian, then it might be motivated by whatever reason to uh, manipulate truth in order to be able to gain something for themselves. Uh, and invariably what that'll do is it'll end up harming somebody who's vulnerable. So as Christians, you know, we're called to uh, be seekers of truth, to stand in love, but also to protect the, the vulnerable and the oppressed, right? So I think that you know, something like vaccine mandates is a perfect area where the evidence is does not substantiate it. There is clear evidence of harm. Uh, and it will invariably, because one solution never fits everyone for uh, any treatment, and let alone mm-hmm. a biologically active toxic vaccine, uh, we are actually uh, endorsing harm to segments of society. By, by allowing this. And so, you know, I would argue as Christians that it's our, our, our that we're, we're required to stand up uh, where we see violations of truth um, and that it is our duty to call out government, you know, as Jesus did when they're, they're not standing in truth and when they are harming people. Can you, um, I know, I think you already did it, but I think it's because you've used the term a bunch and, and I think for people that are relatively ignorant to the subject. Can you define what you mean by toxic? Again, when you say tox- this is a toxic vaccine, again, I think you already did it, but I just thought it's, it's probably a good point. Yeah, to- so we go through that in our safety, yeah, so our safety video, uh, our vaccine safe. So that's probably a really great source if you want to kind of do a deeper dive and I, we explain it there. But um, so basically, usually vaccines are inert. Like they're not biologically active. Therefore, the most you'll get is like a little bit of an injection site pain. Whereas whenever you look at the safety profile, and this is in the published phase three trials um, for the the COVID vaccines, what you see is there's, there's a column called any adverse events. And in this particular depiction, you see that 55% of people who take this vaccine will get so sick that they won't be able to carry on their daily activities. So they'll have trouble carrying on their daily activities. So that's unusual. You should not see that in a vaccine. And curiously, um, a lot of the the symptoms, the side effects are COVID-like symptoms. So fever, headache, fatigue, myalgia, arthralgia, you know, chills. Um, so that that is an odd representation and 15% of people will get so sick that they won't even be able to carry out their daily activities they'll be incapacitated so this is not something that would be considered safe in any regards not even in 
in um, cancer world, let alone when we're talking about administering this to healthy people, especially children, pregnant women, the elderly, especially the frail elderly. These are, are groups of people where uh, you just, because, you know, with children and, and infants in the womb, the number of quality life years that are on the line, if you do some harm, the cost is tremendous. Uh, with the frail elderly, they don't have a lot of reserves and they're very fragile. So if something happens and they, they get something that's toxic, it could, it could kill them. Mm. Um, so that's when I say toxic, that's what I mean, uh, is, is that the actual side effects profile would be considered toxic by any definition. I think anybody who's looking at that fairly would probably have to conclude that, except for it is notable that, you know, every time that these peer-reviewed trials published in New England Journal of Medicine conclude at the end, they're like, and we say that these are safe and effective. But I would not say that that's supported by the actual findings in the trial. Mm. There, there was a, a point that you made under the point about uh, do vaccine, vaccine mandates make sense? And there was this interesting stat that, um, that was helpful and they gave me like a framework to think about the the mandates and it, and it says this experts say that if a vaccine is 90 percent effective 55 percent of the population will need to get vaccinated uh to halt the spread of the virus when, but in ontario 82 percent of eligible people have now undergone voluntary vaccination including vulnerable persons so in theory no one should be at risk right and so now but we're still um mandating mandatory um vaccinations uh, could you elaborate on that and just comment yeah i'm I, I it's a curious position that the state is taking uh, the government's taking because if you think about an individual point of view anybody who's at risk of disease and wants to be protected can be protected therefore there's no requirement for anybody else to do anything there's no societal burden or obligation for anybody else to do anything because if they if these vaccines work then the person will be protected right mm -hmm. um then there's this concept called herd immunity that's very popular in the vaccine world and it basically says that um there's some people that can't take the vaccine and can't be protected they're vulnerable therefore it's it's the onus is on the healthy people to uh, develop immunity right or Whenever they develop immunity, the vaccine stops spreading, and therefore the vulnerable people that which can't fight the the, the disease won't get uh, won't get affected or infected. Um, so, however, the way that these vaccines are being positioned is that they're safe and effective for everybody. And so, if they're safe and effective for everybody, and everybody has access to them, then there's no burden on anybody else to need to do anything. Um, so if that's the case, if they are effective at 95%, then this needing to get 100% vaccination is really not substantiated logically, either at an individual or a societal level. Mm. So it's curious that we're pursuing this with such aggression, you know, putting people's lives on the line. Um, and vacations. You know, their livelihoods, <laughs> their vacations. I mean, we're putting, we're putting everything on the line, right? Mental health you know so much of our society is is being and and i think that really what we need to be doing and especially as christians is questioning whether this is actually a logical you know logical thing and i could argue from a medical standpoint that it's unsubstantiated so i think that basically begs to question well then what's driving this 
you know, and if you wanted to get into economic conversations, we could kind of segue that way a little bit because I've yes, got please. a pharmaceutical <laughs> background. <laughs> yes, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, please. I, yes, I would please. just want to say when when you were talking at the intro about sort of your motivation for getting into your, you know, doing the business for yourself, um, I, I so, you know, appreciated that because, you know, I look at um, sort of the incentives with regards to, um, you know, just take the vaccine injury, vaccine in- industry as a whole. And when you remove manufacturer liability, you're going to skew incentives. Um, and mm-hmm. so yeah. you know, not to go necessarily a total critique of that industry, but the, you know, the, whether it be the conversation about therapeutics with COVID, you know, the, a lot of people are, are putting forward the idea that, well, there's no money here. And, and the motivations in the industry are very much going in that direction. Um, and so I guess I would ask you first, you know, what did you see? Can you break down a little bit of what you saw that in, in getting into the industry that really drove you there? And then, you know, we can speak to, to with regards to COVID. Yeah. So um, big pharma is big <laughs> <laughs> and powerful. Um, and I'm going to say right out of the gate that they do a lot of good. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've worked with some top-notch companies that have done fantastic research and, and have been behind some amazing breakthroughs. Uh, and they're fueled by people with integrity that work hard and are super smart. I would, I would own all of that. But there is a side to pharma where it's motivated by profits and you're all ultimately beholden to your shareholders. And so there's always a pressure towards performance. And, um, you know, ultimately speaking, you know, you want to make sure that there's an ethical line that doesn't get crossed and that principles are upheld. However, there's always a continual tension between, you know, the, the, the wanting to make sure, you know, what if we just bend this one thing or, or all this. And, there, there, you know, there's, there's lots of regulation in place that, that creates firm boundaries. Uh, you know, you don't go past this point and don't say this and do say this. Uh, however, I think it, we would all have to just acknowledge that there is a pressure to to come up against those boundaries in order to gain, you know, to, to make more money. And so, uh, you know, when I was working within pharma, you know, I, I felt that pressure all the time. Personally, I was committed to always relaying things accurately and in a balanced fashion but I did feel that there was a pressure continually to bend it towards something that would benefit the company that you were doing and it came at a number of different levels it could be just you know what you talked about or who you interacted with or what topics you focused on or what you got behind Uh, but it kind of it shows up right across the board and um, you know for me you know cancer is such an important thing my father passed away because of cancer, and so I'm pretty committed to, you know, making sure that the best available care is avail- is made available to to um, Canadians. And so, you know, I wanted to be able to create an infrastructure where we could have national collaboration and where it was completely arm's length from pharma, and we could do these analyses directly with the doctors. So, and following evidence based principles, so that you know, the best recommendations would be made. And if they were favorable to pharma, great. And if they weren't, they weren't. But, you know, the, the bottom line was that they would always be favorable to the patient. So that's kind of what I got into. Um, however, 
uh, pharma is a business and I'm a businesswoman. And so I recognize a good business model when I see one and vaccines are great business. And I'll explain why uh, they're great business relative to other things. In so if you think from a marketing standpoint, uh, whenever you're, you, you want to develop a treatment, basically there's a population that you treat. So when you start launching a product, you would treat a very specific population. Say, let's, I'm just going to give the example of cancer. So advanced cancer patients, let's say they're, they're, they've received lots of prior treatment and they probably only have two months to live. So, you know, maybe we'll call that like, I don't know, a hundred patients, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll make some money. Um, and you, but you have to go through the whole development cycle of proving that it's good for that particular group, which can be very costly. And, and, you know, you can think a treatment's going to work. And then at the end, they would do the randomized controlled trial and it's a failure. Mm-hmm. So there's a tremendous amount of money that goes into development to conducting this clinical research in order to get even a small, what they call niche market, uh, which would be like super advanced cancer. Uh, and so the goal in the pharmaceutical industry is to move forward earlier in treatment. The earlier you go in treatment, the more patients you get. So you get a bigger, what it's called market. I know it sounds terrible to be thinking about this, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's, it's a stage wise thing. And at each, each threshold, you have to prove that you're better than what's the standard of care. And then you get to go to a bigger market and a bigger market. Well, vaccines are the biggest market ever because you don't even need to be sick to need a vaccine you just need to be alive right Mm. and so if you can convince somebody that they need a vaccine when they have no symptoms and they don't need treatment right Mm -hmm. then that's the biggest market possible all that you need to be is a healthy adult and i mean the vaccine industry basically you know there's a lot of vaccines that are administered to children and all that children need to do is be born and they're eligible for the vaccine and then we make calculated um, you know, risk benefit analysis saying, well, you know, the, the, this will prevent such and such a disease, which has terrible side effects. So we're going to do this, this, you know, child benefit by giving them this vaccine. So, you know, a lot of the emphasis then moves from the realm of evidence in the sense that it does do help to the realm of speculation, where I think that this would benefit somebody. Mm-hmm. So again, it becomes much more easy to convince somebody that they need to take a treatment that whenever you're thinking of prevention, because all that you need to do is, is scare them uh, into thinking that they'll get sick. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's easy. It's good business, right? Um, and it's a lot less risky than having to prove that something works or not. And a lot of the time, the prevention trials, if you were to do a, a proper prevention trial, it's, you know, it would take 20 years. Like, say, for instance, you say, oh, I think it's going to stop cancer. Well, you would have to wait. You know, cancer takes 10, 20 years to, to show. So you'd have to wait 10 or 20 years. Now, that's just not a viable marketing. Strange. You know, it's just not viable from a development. It's, it's super costly trial to do, you know, the loss to follow up. I mean, it's super expensive. So nobody's going to want to do that trial. So then what Mm -hmm. you do is these surrogate endpoint trials where you basically say, oh, it developed antibodies, therefore it will prevent disease, which you might get. So anyways, I I Mm -hmm. guess it's, uh, it it moves, it moves from, I guess the, instead of the level of the burden of evidence getting higher, which it should for healthy patients, the standard is that it's quite low. Um, Yeah, that's, that's And as long as you can develop antibodies, 
yeah, it's it's a bit strange. But from a from a business point of view, that's down. You don't have to trials that go on for years. You just have to show that a surrogate endpoint changes, um, and you're able to. So there's a lot of motivation for pharmaceutical companies to find, uh, you know, to to invest in vaccines because of that. I'm not saying that they haven't prevented disease and that they don't have a role, but I'm just saying that in terms of a business perspective, it's 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 the pot of gold, right? Mm-hmm. So now, historically, it's important for you to also understand that there's regulations that have been involved. So in terms of what you can do is if you're a company and you promotes you know once you have something that you think works then you're allowed to talk to you can have qualified people who are allowed to talk to doctors about it right um and then you know you can't doc talk directly to patients you're not allowed it's called marketing you can market to doctors right you can mm-hmm. present your best you know message to a doctor but you're not allowed to present your best message to a patient because the patient isn't qualified to discern that level of data mm. uh you know and then a little while ago they basically started to say, you know, well, you can advertise, you know, which would be kind of directly talking to the patient. But, you know, if you do do a commercial that's presenting your best message or whatever it is, uh, you know, marketing campaign, you need to have all the side effects, you know, so you'll see, you know, such and such does amazing things for you. And then, and it causes heart disease and da, 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 you know, like those weird commercials right. that you see <laughs> where they have to qualify everything, right? Um, but a little while ago, one of the things that started to happen that was really kind of interesting, which was good for pharma, was that um, they started to realize that they work through patient groups, advocacy groups, that um, they could basically uh, influence politicians, manipulate oh, you politicians mean like lobby groups. towards a certain end. Yeah, long, yeah. so, you know, mm-hmm. for instance, a good example would be the breast cancer advocacy group. So you know, they started talking to these groups and they're not allowed to talk to people, but then they get the advocacy groups to talk to their peers. And so they're kind of indirectly marketing to patients. That happened, oh, I don't know, about four or five years ago. And then it went from there to they get those advocacy groups then to do campaigns towards government to get them to, to you know, recommend certain treatments, right? Yes, So then all of a sudden... Yeah. So all of a sudden, pharmaceutical companies are getting more leverage, right? So mm-hmm. they're able to, um, you know, they're able to kind of get access to people more and to influence people more. And of course, historically, we've always said that people should not be marketed to because they don't have a level of sophistication to discern whether it is actually good for them or not, right? So, you know, a marketing campaign will, you know, a, a connect something to emotion, minimize harm you know, maximize benefits. That's just what they do when you market, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it doesn't, it violates people's informed consent because they're not able to carefully weigh the pros and cons of a given treatment. Yeah. So yeah, then, it's funny. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. No, no, no. Finish your, finish your thought. Um, but anyways, it went to another level where then they started to re- liaise directly with governments and started to say that the, they, you know, there's a cost benefit analysis, it's called, where they would go to governments and they would say, you know, you're, this disease costs you so much to, to treat, let's just say cancer, right? You know, it's billions of dollars in budget. And, you know, we could save you a lot of money by vaccinating this group of patients. Uh, it will save you money in the end. And so then all of a sudden, 
you know, government was like, wow, you know, we've got, you know, uh, social health care, you know, central health care. And so that's a big budget line, right? So if I can minimize that somehow, uh, that's really interesting to me. And so then there's this collaboration between government and vaccines companies or companies with vaccines that began where the governments were kind of getting into it with the, va- the pharmaceutical companies because it saved money. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you've got this interesting thing where the, the government was really supposed to be the regulator, the independent body that's protecting the, the, the patients from undue influence from pharma. And yet then all of a sudden you get the government kind of partnering with pharma then to promote these vaccines to the people. Now, there's no, there's no regulation that prevents a government from marketing to its people. Right. Uh, and so what you start to see is more and more of that where, you know, public health will require vaccination then uh, for, for various activities. And you saw a lot of that mm. earlier, like vaccines for school and stuff like that. So that's kind of this partnership now between government. And now it's not the pharmaceutical companies that are promoting it to the people. It's it's the government that is promoting it or marketing to its people. And if it's unethical for pharmaceutical companies to do it, then it's questionable whether it's ethical for mar- for, for governments to do it. Um, and so then with this pandemic, you know, it, it's, it was incredible because not only, you know, did governments move into a, a, an active role of promoting vaccines, but they basically disregarded all of the rules of informed consent. And a lot of the campaigning was basically uh, specifically related to it was it's a marketing campaign where they do the classic thing where they emphasize the benefits and minimize the risk mm-hmm. and they obscure details so that the consumer isn't actually able to make an informed choice. And interestingly enough, the consumer is their actual citizen that the government is supposed to be protecting, but now is being, you know, is now the ob- the focus of their consumption. Do you know what I mean? Like that's yep. their... They're, they feel that they're successful if they convince the person that they're trying to protect to take this, which, you know, probably isn't a terrible thing if you have a safe and effective vaccine. But the well, thing that I find extremely concerning about this, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. You, yeah, no, I'll let you finish. I, I was just going to apply a terminology to it. So. Yeah, so that I would, it would be great if it's a safe and effective vaccine, but it isn't. And so what we have here now is government, you know, not even, you know, it should, it was, it moved from, you know, active participation in promotion, then a violation of informed consents by using what I would call propaganda and marketing, actively marketing to it. And now they're moving to coercion through vaccine mandates. Uh, And so it's a very concerning ethical situation that we're in where Mm -hmm. government feels that it's warranted. However, I don't think that it would be substantiated by any normal standards of evidence. Uh, And I think it's just inappropriate that a government would be engaging in that type of relationship with the citizens that it's supposed to be protecting. Mm. Yeah. And I think part of the issue is people don't even realize that, uh, that medicine isn't necessarily a foregone conclusion and people have different philosophies on medication and on medicine um and how far people will go with their medicine so sometimes you'll hear about people where they're saying oh yeah um my auntie just went to have her uterus removed mm-hmm. right and you're kind of like whoa, whoa 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 wait what would you have to do to you know 
did is there another option right kind of like when we go to the um, mm-hmm. doctors and we say actually i want to get a second opinion and in sports right they're like actually you know let me get a second opinion actually that's how we got Kawhi. <laughs> Kawhi got a second opinion and it was like yo i'm out of there so <laughs> it's it's important for us to realize that we have to respect people's uh philosophies on 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 um, medicine and how they see it so for example just in my framework and the way i see it is all medicines have um you know have side effects right mm-hmm. and 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 nothing is perfect there isn't like um a silver bullet that cures all things and so i'm weary when people are giving telling me about um you know a, a this this vaccine or other things and and they're not telling me about um what what's behind the curtain so these are things we have to be mindful mm-hmm. of yeah and i think you know i think that even even some people that i talk to that aren't necessarily medically trained you know are like you know man that's like that sounds like very homogeneous messaging right like i'm 100% sure you know the way out of a pandemic is much more nuanced than take your vaccine <laughs> Like if every other problem in society is more nuanced, then why is it this one? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, how can you continue to say it's safe and effective if, you know, there's 13,000 deaths in the ad, you know, the uh, VAERS database, which is the adverse events database, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hmm, is that really true? Like, you know, do we, are we really, oh yes, no, vaccines are always safe and effective and it's good for you. Uh, you know, I think the other thing that we need to really, con- you know, remember when we're thinking about treatment is that, you know, there's a, a broad, you know, the population is is very different. You know, what's good for you might not be good for me based on, you know, our our history, our comorbidities, our treatment past, you know, different factors that are are going on. You know, so it's it's never, you know, one size fits all, and. So I think that, you know, that's called personalized medicine. It's where you take something and you look at the person's personal situation and then you customize a treatment accordingly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the fact that we're doing one size fits all medicine at the at a a time when our level of sophistication is quite advanced is very curious. Uh, You know, and the other thing, too, is that if you were to look at, you know, things that alternate treatments, you know, whether they're nutraceuticals or you know, things like ivermectin or fluvoxamine or other things that have now got randomized phase three trial and against standards of care and do show benefits in terms of the clinical endpoints that we were talking about where they have measured things like, you know, not only cases, but severe disease and death and actually have shown benefit. We're not really acknowledging that. And we're saying that that doesn't have a lot of evidence. And yet we're looking at these vaccine trials that were really only done in a very in, in healthy patients with a questionable endpoint without proving that there was, you know, improvements in severe disease and death. And we're saying that that's good. And that's the only solution. And there's no other solution. And yet we know that these other things exist with higher levels of evidence and burdens of proof. So it's very curious, you know, I would think that even the average consumer should start to ask questions whenever they hear something that it's just only one solution for everyone. You know, in those phase three trials, you know, they didn't actually include uh, pregnant women, for instance. They didn't include the, the large ones that were done, didn't include children. They didn't include people who were COVID recovered uh, that had pre-existing immunity, and they didn't include immunocompromised people. 
And then, you know, the moment that these trials were finished, you know, the, the campaign rolled out and, you know, they were marketing it to the elderly, the frail elderly as because they were at higher risk. Well, those people weren't even studied, you know, and then they made a case for, uh, you know, women who were pregnant uh, had, were at higher risk than non-pregnant people. But if you consider that um, a number of the people in that particular study were obese and obesity is a risk factor and that pregnancy itself is a risk factor, then the differences between the pregnant and the non-pregnant group in that particular study were really, uh, you know, minimal. So I don't think that you mm -hmm. could make a, a good case for, for women being it. But then they immediately started treating every single pregnant woman. And I was just reading the Ontario Public Health bulletin that was saying, and now women can get booster shots because they're in a vulnerable group. You know, and the, you know, the vaccine has never been tested in women in a randomized controlled trial. And when I say they emphasize randomized controlled trial, it's because it's never been tested in a way that can prove that it's both safe and effective for that population. You know, using it in real world studies and then looking at the data like they have been doing for a CDC is just so open to manipulation and bias and error that, you know, when we're thinking about the lives and of unborn children, it just doesn't make sense that you would be that cavalier or casual with your scrutiny. I think, you know, a good way of thinking about this is like if you're in a war zone and, you know, there's enemy fire, enemies all around you and you want to clear the civilians out of a village, you know, what you do is you go forward and you clear the area and you make sure that there's no enemy there so that when you bring the civilians through, they'll be safe. So what we've done with these vaccines is we've basically kind of taken this position where we say, I don't see any enemy fire. So yeah, pregnant women, go ahead. <laughs> right? mm. It's like, it's we're like not taking the time safety. to clear. It's a, which is, it's, it's not what you do in medicine, mm -hmm. you know, because the adages do no harm, then you have to prove safety before you've given it. So you know, we've adopted this very strange thing. And I think it's because governments are actively marketing to their people where they're like, if I, you know, if I, if I don't look for a prop, if I don't look properly for safety and therefore don't see it, then I will say that it's safe because then I will get them to use the vaccine. Do you get mm. it? Yep. So it's minimizing the risk. It's, it's, you know, you, ma you maximize benefit, you minimize risk in, in business mm -hmm. when you're marketing something. And so they're minimizing the risk by not looking and not doing the proper due diligence. Yeah. Uh, and they're maximizing benefit by extrapolating from surrogate endpoints. And, and I think your point earlier um, regarding sort of the shift in the industry, you know, the getting, you know, pharma being way more involved with sort of government as a means to, um, you know, help mitigate government's uh, medical costs. Um, you know, the term that, that I think is appropriate uh, is, is regulatory capture. And, um, mm. you know, the, the, the piece that goes in there, I think for a lot of people is to, you know, they see this like revolving door between these agencies like CDC and FDA between, you know, the people, the companies are supposed to be regulating. And, and, you know, as an outsider, mm -hmm. to some extent, you're like, oh, I guess it kind of makes sense, helps them make better decisions because they understand how the system works because they're been on both sides. But the problem with the regulatory capture concept is not that these people are corrupt or, or incompetent, but that the, you know, you sort of use the term or you didn't use this term earlier, but you spoke to the idea of like compartmentalization and, and between mm -hmm. conflicts of interest and very narrow sort of lifelong, you know, um, careers, let's say working with 
use vaccine as an example, oh, I know the benefit. And and sort of like, you know, because of that regulatory capture, be, they're not independent. They're not fulfilling the role that we as society think of them as. Oh, they're the regular. They're protecting the customer. But the way they're protecting the customer is, you know, by lowering the financial burden on the healthcare system to the government, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, I would say we don't, as far as I understand, there's almost no independent study from those regulatory bodies. They're relying on the studies from those companies. And, and again, as you sort mm-hmm. of said, there's the incentive to, to shift things. Um, and, and I just want to wrap up with the regulatory capture concept. You know, when you look at the government's sort of like dirty dozen list of, you know, people who are spreading vaccine misinformation, the one guy on there, Robert Kennedy Jr., has an experience going after the government's uh, EPA with regards to regulatory capture um, regarding the coal mm-hmm. and mining industry. And so it's it's peculiar to see someone on like on that list who has a history of exposing regulatory capture. And I look at it and see, you know, the different things like what I didn't really realize the stuff you described with cards, the industry sort of shifting. But I did see that revolving door mm-hmm. criticize, you know, people going in and out of companies and, and in and out of the agencies. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I, I just wonder. Oh, sorry, just uh, on the regulatory yeah. capture, but just like a couple last pieces on the business stand, and it, and it kind of loops back to this whole mandate thing is what, what's better than having access to a continual market, right, is mm-hmm. the ability to develop a product uh, very cost effectively. So mRNA technology is basically is like having a little printer in your backyard from a, you know, usually the development costs for vaccines are extraordinary in the sense you have to go through animal models and testing and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, then you've got to, you know, manufacture your vaccine and there's all sorts of, you know, regulatory requirements and, you know, standards that you have to meet. But with these mRNA vaccines, basically, they just get these little lipid nanoparticles and, you know, do gene sequencing, which is like really kind of like printing, Mm -hmm. right? And then they're basically, it's done. Right, so the cost of manufacturing and the expe- like the the time to which you can actually produce a product is extremely low. So you've got lots of opportunity benefit on that side too, because you don't actually have to, you know, the development cost, the actual manufacturing costs and timelines are are the timelines are compressed and the costs are, are much lower. Mm. So, but then if you can convince people. Right. So, you know, on that note, like, again, remember that the best marketing is done through either appeal to authority or appeal to emotion. Right. So if you Mm -hmm. can convince the whole population that they're terrified and then the people demand the government do something. Right. And then basically the government says, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm I'm politically invested in the sense that I don't want to lose my position. So I better move to the will of the people who are terrified. So if you can be a pharmaceutical company or any entity that then can work through these advocacy groups, these people, you know, maybe if you have control of mainstream media and you can terrify everybody by misrepresenting data, Mm -hmm. uh, then you've got high emotions and then the people will petition their government to do something, which will then get the government, you know, they're already very involved in vaccines. So they start doing their own thing and then they get, you get the government to market. So then you don't even have any costs for marketing, right? And on yep. top of that, also, you're supposed to do post-marketing trials and you can get the governments to do those mm. or even waive the need for it. And then if you keep your fear machine going, then you can convince the people that they need boosters to be safe. Mm-hmm. So then you can just print something every four to five months and it's, it's, the, it's, it's the, 
like a, the pharmaceutical dream come true, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that any of that's actually happening, Just but knowing the business and knowing the, the thing and seeing the pattern, you know, and I can, I, I watch the pharma headlines, you know, every day I'm, I'm monitoring them continually. And there's a big move between pharmaceutical companies to figure out ways that they can streamline development to make access to good vaccines more effective. And really what that means in marketing or, you know, jumbo terms is that they want to develop a surrogate endpoint whereby, you know, vaccines are now approved just based on antibody titers. So you don't have to do any safety. You don't have to do anything else. We'll just assume that they're effective. And as long as they can produce antibody titers and they can print these mRNA vaccines for anything. Mm. So, you know, if we think that this is stopping here, you know, the government has basically bought enough vaccine boosters for everybody to get one every two or three months or something like that. Uh, you know, and, and the machine, you know, there's a Moderna plant going in and on in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. So to print mRNA vaccines. Are they so hiring? This is the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the beginning of something really quite larger than this, right? And if you can force vaccinate people, even better. Mm -hmm. Then you've e got complete capture. Even more reason why safety is of utmost importance. Um, I mean, it sounds like the technology is very promising and could be very beneficial, but if you're not doing it safely, um, you know, and how, if yeah. and if the government's very active in 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 uh, it feels very comfortable in just telling people what they need to take, then, you know, I could see how this could get to be very destructive, yeah. you know, and, and again, you know, they're recommending boosters now, but they haven't done any safety testing to see what the effect of cumulative boosters are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. There's no, no three shot trials. No, there's no, th you know, there was no, there was no uh, big gap between the two doses trials. There was no mixing and matching trials. Uh, there's no booster trials. So all of a sudden, the government kind of went from requiring very little evidence to make a decision to then getting actively and promoting a vaccine, then now to disregarding the need for safety and efficacy altogether and just you know unilaterally deciding what's good for us and limiting our livelihoods if we disagree. So I think vaccine mandates are, are very concerning. And mm -hmm. it's not about... It's not about, you know, the goodwill, like it's not about, you know, you should really help granny by getting your vaccine and stop the spread of the disease, because I don't think it's really about that at all. Um, I think it's about, you know, standing up for medical ethics and our right to informed consent and to be free of coercion uh, whenever it comes to making treatment decisions. You know, it's about personal responsibility uh, in order to maintain our health and also to make sure that, that we're taking treatments that are good for us. And while considering others, making sure that they're responsible for keeping themselves safe. Uh, and, you know, I think, too, that as Christians, you know, there's a lot of people who've been looking to Romans 13 in terms of saying, you know, we should follow the state. Mm -hmm. However, you know, if the state starts to do things that are harmful to large segments of society and to bend the truth and to coerce and manipulate their people, I think as Christians, we're the first that need to stand and speak up against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think um, you, there's a lot of concern right now. I think, you know, I'm really appreciative of, of a lot of the 
insight in or inside information you gave in the sense that you know i kept thinking about the economics sort of principles at play in terms of incentives regulatory capture uh the i didn't we didn't throw this term around yet but you were talking about governments and and really there's the economic concept of public choice theory and, and without getting into it it's i always describe it to people it's like so many people put themselves in the place of government and think oh if it was me here's how i would act without really understanding how politicians have such a different level of incentives in the way that they operate and think and make decisions mm -hmm. um, and and you know i always have said from the very beginning people have asked me why is this happening you know what like or or what's the motivations and and i always say you know for the politician the biggest concern they have is acting when the public thinks they need to act because mm -hmm. acting mm -hmm. when they shouldn't, they can always say it would have been so much worse. And it's very, very difficult to prove that statement wrong. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Yeah. Mm. And then, you know, I think the last thing for Christians, and I know you want to wrap up, so I'll be no. my last thought, but <laughs> you know, I, I, I really think that as Christians, we really need to be looking at for idolatry in our hearts. Right. Mm. And when I think of idolatry, I'm thinking about we've idolized the medical system. We've always mm -hmm. looked to the medical system to save us. And I'm the first out there to say that, right? Because I'm actively involved in it. But uh, when you trust an idol blindly, it will always destroy you, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there's a lot of blind trust that we've given the medical system. You know, oh, they're a doctor. They must know what they're talking about. And we've just kind of parked our brains. And I don't think that's appropriate for Christians because we do need to be discerning truth and we do need to be active in our love, which means that we need to be protecting the vulnerable. And I think we've idolized government. You know, mm -hmm. the government will save me from this pandemic and what they're doing must be right. So, you know, unfortunately, I think a couple of our, uh, you know, collective idols, and I think that they've infiltrated the, the church, are, are coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we're, mm -hmm. we're captured now fully by what we, what we trusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a really good um, point to wrap up on. I, I've I've sort of said I think a lot of those, you know, the the trust in the medical world, the public health institutions, you know, we're going to have a reckoning after all of this because you know the faults or the failures of those systems are are you know for us those of us that are looking at the data, um, I think we're sort of seeing it and realizing, hey, you know, something's not quite right, and it's only a matter of time before people figure it out. So for the listener who, you know, likes what you've you've said, I will say um if they had any questions about the the vaccine safety stuff, definitely check out your the COVID sense YouTube videos because I think you broke it down pretty good, but the visual graphics that go with it to to demonstrate some of that is is really really helpful um to to if they want to dig into it and and maybe think about it a little bit deeper. Um but for the listener who wants to connect with you or or see your stuff, what what would you recommend as like resources or or ways to reach out to you? Well, I think the, the YouTube channel is probably the best means of kind of getting access to our data. We're, we've got a, an article that we've published on Trial Site News on uh, vaccines and pregnancy or COVID and, and pregnancy. Uh, and I think the vaccine mandate one is going to be going up on the Canadian COVID Care Alliance website. So those are all excellent things. And of course, they can always get in touch with me through uh, covidsense at gmail.com. So uh, we can, I'll give you that email so you can share it with your listeners. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's definitely been a very informative conversation for, yes. for me as well. So, Yes, yes, definitely. Um, yeah. All the best. Thanks very much. Thanks for your interest and for having this conversation. I think it's important to have, especially in Christian circles. Agreed. Thank you again. Have a good day. Bye. Okay, bye now. But you heard me. 
Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell